0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Noelle Jafrida, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we'll be speaking with David J. Mazina about his recent book, Nodding the Banner, Ritual and Relationship in Taoist Practice, published jointly by the University of Hawaii and the Chinese University of Hong Kong Presses in 2021. Mozena's book weaves together ethnography, textual analysis, photography, and film, inviting readers into the religious world of Taoist practice in today's South China by exploring one particular ritual called the Banner Rite to Summon Sire Yin, as practiced in central Hunan province. Performed as the first public ritual by a Taoist apprentice at his own ordination, the Banner Rite seeks to summon celestial lord Yin Jiao, the ferocious martial deity who supplies the exorcistic power to protect and heal bodies and spaces from illness and misfortune. A lot is at stake. If the apprentice cannot successfully summon the deity in front of his village community and the pantheon of gods in attendance, he would not be able to be ordained that day and would risk losing the confidence of villagers who might hire him in the future. Through a close reading of the ritual in its social and historical context, Mosina shows that the efficacy, sorry, efficacy, of rituals like the banner rite is driven by the ability of a master to form an intimate relationship with exorcistic deities like Yinjiao, which is far from guaranteed. Mosina reveals the ways in which such ritual claims are rooted in the great liturgical movements of the Song and Yuan dynasties and how they are performed these days amid the social and economic pressures of royal life, rural life in post-Mao era. Nodding the banner will be of interest to students of, and scholars of Taoism and Chinese religions, and will also appeal to historians of religion and anthropologists, especially those working on ritual. Now, David J. Mozina studies contemporary Taoist, Chinese Taoist and Buddhist ritual in central Hunan province, and the roots of that ritual in the Song and Yuan periods, from the 10th to the 14th centuries. He also studies ritual traditions of late Imperial China. And this book, Nodding the Banner, Ritual and Relationship in Taoist Practice, is his first monograph. David, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Noah.
1: David, I'd like to begin by asking you a bit about your background and research interests. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in the field?
0: Well, um... I was starting to feel quite late, actually. Uh, I had started uh, doing a doctorate at Harvard University under Michael Pewitt in early China. Uh, So early Chinese religions was my interest. And um, before that, I had come out really from a religious studies background, not China at all. And so uh, I had studied at Columbia and uh, after at Harvard um, in uh, a specific tradition of religious studies that uh, some people call the phenomenology of religion. So I was influenced by people like John Carmen and Rachel McDermott, Jack Hawley at Columbia or Harvard and Columbia, Diana Eck, Kimberly Patton, Larry Sullivan, John Carmen. So these are not names that people in East Asian studies would know. Um, so I'm working with Michael Pew on early China and I just passed my exams and I was distraught, really distraught. Um, Almost in tears, I confided in him, uh, saying, "Look, I just don't feel the early period material very well. It just doesn't speak to me. It feels cold." And Michael, in uh, his characteristic enthusiasm, said, "Well, why don't you try something else? Well, how about something contemporary?" Uh, and so I thought about that, and um, and that made sense to me because the early period uh, is lacking context which is why really good theoretical minds like Michael's um, have so much space to play. But later periods, context grows and grows, and it's oozing with meaning. And that, that's what I felt I needed. So at that point, I had already been sort of interested in Taoist things, partly because no one studied them. And I'd only read one book at that point by John Lagerway, his 1987 book, Daoist uh, Taoist Ritual in Chinese Society and History. And I didn't understand it, but I was intrigued. So, um, I felt compelled to actually fly to Paris where John Lagerway was working, um, uh, at the, uh, Ecole uh, pratique des Etudes, And, uh, we spent an afternoon in his, in his, um, Paris apartment and I told him my story and his eyes lit up and he said, look, two guys from France, Patrice Fala and Alana Rowe. Uh, who are both uh, in the Beijing Bureau of the École Française d'Extrême-Orient, or EFEO. Um, They just won a Jiang Jingguo Fellowship to work on local Hunan religion. Why don't you go there? I'll call them. Why don't you go there? Just go to Beijing and see if you can tag along. Uh, So, you know, I felt this was too serendipitous to pass up, and so I did that. So I flew to Beijing, and uh, Patrice met me. Um, and took me to the office, the Peking uh, Bureau Office of the EFEO, and um, just inundated me with what he had been finding and that the EFAO office has started to work on the past few years. Patrice um, went to Huna. Well, Patrice was collecting uh, little wooden statues of uh, deities or ancestors or both uh, in the antique markets around Beijing, and in the back of them was carved um, consecration certificates that said that sort of uh, were written out when the image was consecrated. Uh, so it gave the address, it gave the deity, it gave everything. It was incredible material. And uh, material was so rich and he collected so many and others started to collect these that uh, the EFAO was reoriented then to work on this project and so then Patrice went, started to go to Hunan to try to find the roots because he had the addresses of these uh, statues. And he just poked around and he met all of these Taoist practitioners, local practitioners or practitioners of local rites that, you know, we'd never heard of before. Um, and Buddhist practitioners, all kinds of people in the countryside of central Hunan where most of these statues come from. Uh, And then Alana Ro, who was the bureau chief at the time of uh, the AFAO in Beijing, um, then also went to the field from time to time. uh, And he was building up contacts with local scholars, so-called local scholars, who knew the dialects, the local dialects, and uh, had contacts with local practitioners. And I went to the field with Patrice and I went to the field with Alana for over a year, um, back and forth. Uh, And just sort of paid attention and sort of just tried to figure out what they were doing and why it mattered, having not really been trained in any of this stuff and not really being able to read uh, Daoist material very well at all. Uh, And so um, finally, I decided to uh, kind of strike out on my own. And Alan had made contact in Anhua County, southwestern Anhua, southeastern Anhua County, uh, in a town called Meicheng. Uh, with a local scholar and he put me in contact with him and I went to see him and he took me to see um or to to observe a jiao or a sort of a festival uh an offering rite a 3-day ritual that was being performed by uh a a lineage of daoists about about 15 miles from where he lived and so he took me to see them um and uh, I was transfixed. I had never been around anything that intense religiously in my life. The, the sound, the people, the, the frenetic activity. And for those of us uh, who are interested in Taoist ritual, uh, Ken Dean uh, captures this pretty well in his writings, um, just what it feels like to be there. It's overwhelming. Uh, and so I was meeting these Taoist priests, all male, um, non-monastics. Uh, who serve their local communities. And one about my age just, you know, really took more of an interest in me than I took in him just kept following me around and asking me questions. Who are you? Where are you from? You know, why are you possibly interested in this stuff? You know, uh, I don't think any of these people had ever met a foreigner. Um, and, uh, we became friends slowly at first. Right. But, and I said, look, Uh, I'm just interested in learning what you do. I think other foreigners would be interested too. And he said, well, in about four months, uh, there's going to be an ordination. We're going to, it doesn't happen very often. We're going to ordain one of our own. Uh, Why don't you come back for that? And so uh, I went back to Beijing and uh, shared my findings with Patrice and Alan. And I did that. And so I went back to Hunan, and uh, I observed the ritual at the heart of this book, which is an ordination, which is one of the first um, sort of rituals that or performances that I had ever sort of seen. So I didn't really know what I was looking at. I just tried to capture everything with film and with photography. Uh, And so that's where this this began, Uh, all really very serendipitous. And then I was so overwhelmed with the just sheer mass of data, and I had no idea what I was looking at, I w- I got depressed again. And I went back to Beijing, and, uh, and it came to me that I really needed to spend time there with these practitioners, with these priests. And so I arranged then to go live with them. Uh, and so I went and lived with them for an entire summer, almost four months, and just shadowed them. They allowed me to film everything they did. And then when we weren't filming or when they weren't practicing either funerals which they do or uh uh jiao which are Taoist uh festivals or rites uh, for the good of the community or minor rites for households uh to protect uh, or heal from demonic afflictions uh places and bodies. When we weren't doing that, um uh, they slowly taught me we worked through the rituals. We would look at film that I took, they taken on my computer and they have manuals that script the uh, rituals. Uh, not unlike I'm Roman Catholic, uh, grown up in Roman Catholic uh, tradition. So not unlike lectionary that you would find on an altar in a Roman Catholic church. And, uh, and we worked through them looking at the film, looking at working through the, the manuals. And that was Really, the foundational education, because so much of the ritual uh, isn't written down; uh, it's kept in oral form. And so they let they extended to me then these oral teachings, uh, kochuan in Chinese, um, that is really only supposed to be shared with those who are initiated. And so they let me into their world, and we had sort of built a kind of trust and respect for each other. Um, And it was really uh, remarkable. It was difficult. Um, Most of the time it's in dialect. The dialect is very hard. Um, I can't understand more than a simple sentence. Um, So the younger uh, priests then would have to translate everything into Mandarin. Um, And, you know, I recorded a lot and then asked them to write out important um, recordings of discussions that we would have, arguments that would be. Um, sort of spurred by my silly questions um, and it, but it turned out to be actually a really good research method and it yielded more than I could possibly write on in a lifetime um, so it was a serendipitous story that really began with despair in Michael Pewett's office and led to a series of offices really uh, down then to the sort of home offices of these of Taoist these priests in the middle of, of Hunan in the mountains so that's the story
1: Wow, that's amazing! You had terrific access and um, spent so much time building their trust, and to be able to do all that filming and and to work with translation of dialect—that's fantastic. So you started. You you've told us sort of how you got to work in Hunan and some of the experiences uh, that you had there. Um, a lot of your book is uh, talking about the experiences of a man named Chun Diwan who's the main practitioner in your study that you briefly mentioned um, in your remarks just a moment ago, can you introduce us uh, to him and um, how he play, what role he plays in, in your overall study?
0: Yeah. So the center of the book uh, really focuses on, on one ritual performed by one aspiring Taoist. He wasn't even a Taoist priest yet. It was his own ordination, his first public ritual. And I thought maybe to, to give um, listeners a sort of sense here of like, the, it sets the tone of the book. I would I read just, just one paragraph from near the beginning of the book. I think really, really paints a picture here of, of what this book is trying to do. So here's the paragraph. Shun Wen puffed on cigarettes one after the other as he sat on a stool on, front, on the front porch of the modest two-story brick structure. In which he lived with his grandparents and wife. The house was perched on the side of a verdant hill above the tiny hamlet town of Mount Shashan, one of dozens of poor villages dotting the rugged hills west of Lu'an Township in Anhua County in central Hunan Province. He sat under the awning of the house, protected from the steadily pouring rain. From time to time, he stepped out onto the dirt path to look further up the hill. Peering between the raindrops at a bamboo flagpole that had been erected in a terraced rice paddy, particularly at the blue cloth banner that billowed from it. It had been some time since he had finished performing the Taoist ritual in which he produced a long talisman written on a three-by-eight-foot banner and then hoisted it onto the pole. He craned to see whether the wind had tangled into knots, the five pennant-like streamers cut to the unattached end of the banner. He saw that it had not that the long tapered shapes of the streamers continued to flicker almost like flames in the healthy breeze as they were when he first raised the banner and returned to his stool on the porch and avoided eye contact with the dozens of masters, relatives, and villagers who were attending his ordination into the priesthood that day. Nervously, he continued smoking. The absence of knots in the penance meant that the deity he had summoned, In Jiao, during the ritual,
1: had not yet heeded
0: his call. So Chun Di Wen was this ordinant who would be ordained. And this is my first searing image of him, right near the beginning of the ordination, Jiao, of him just chain-smoking, nervous, waiting for the streamers cut into this big cloth blue banner to not hang from the pole up on a hill in the wind. And I just felt the anxiety around it all. I mean, everyone was nervous. Everyone was nervous, you know, just people weren't talking much. It was, it was palpable, even for someone who didn't understand the dialect. And so uh, I was like, wow, why wow. what's going on here? Why all this anxiety? So the book then really is an attempt to answer that question. What, why the anxiety? So uh, the book then uh, explains that Chandi Wen is this young guy trying to be ordained. And uh, it tells a story of him um, up to this point. Um, and, uh, and, and it tries to, to sort of humanize the telling of ritual, which uh, I think a lot of religious studies and certainly a, a lot of the Chinese study of ritual tends to um, read as a kind of cold, kind of sterile kind of flat um because it's just interested in in sort of the forms or structures of ritual behavior and it's easy then to sort of write subjects out of the picture but this first image you couldn't do that i mean these people and their anxiety was front and center so i had to figure out a different way to go at this so um so this is this is really sort of what the book is trying to do and so chen di wen uh, I can talk about his background, uh, if that helps. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So I, I learned uh, by living with this lineage for months and months, well, several stints over years, um, was um, born in 1976. And his story of how he became a Dallas priest, I think, is, is probably fairly typical. Um, but it, telling his story in this book gives a kind of glimpse of what it's like to try to become a Taoist or be a Taoist priest in the turn of the 21st century. Um, so uh, he grew up kind of sickly kid um, and his grandmother uh, had a sort of devout um, sort of um, a devotion to uh, a local um, healer, um, a deceased healer uh, named Yang Faqing, who was actually uh, a practitioner of local rites Um, uh, they say 200 or so years ago. And she had a statue of him, right? The same kind of statue that Alan and Patrice were collecting and codifying and working on in Beijing. And she prayed to him when uh, Chun was uh, six, seven years old. Um, And she then breathed on a cup of tea and gave it to him to drink. And he felt a little better. And so this kind of... Uh, sort of religious therapeutic um, kind of home practice was part of his childhood. I think he was sort of born into this and he appreciated it. Uh, So as he grew up then, this is in the nineties and this is when uh, the countryside is uh, still terribly poor and uh, the reforms of Deng Xiaoping are just beginning to sort of take effect. And most, um, People uh, Chun's age were going off to the coasts as migrant laborers to work in factories in Shenzhen and so forth, and uh, he didn't want to do that. He didn't feel like his body could take it, uh, and so he kept looking for things to do. And he just never felt right. Uh, he didn't test in the college. None of these priests do, um, and so he decided one day. Then uh, why not become? Why not try to become a, a Taoist priest? what drew him to that was the music. It was interesting. So they're very proud of their flute music. right? And if you go out to the countryside anywhere in South China and just listen, sooner or later you're going to run into a ritual um, because the music is distinctive and loud. Um, so he was drawn. And he went to study then with a master not far from his home. Uh, and he began learning uh, deeds of the bamboo flute, which is how you begin to learn to be a Taoist priest learn through the musical instruments not with theory or not with practice you learn how to chant and you learn how to play and so he did that for four years and then finally then he uh, felt he learned enough to ask his master uh, to ordain him his master agreed and that's when i found him um at the scene i just read to you so that's a bit of the the background of of chen di wen
1: thank you So, um, you all, another major character in the book is uh, Celestial Marshal Yin, um, this powerful martial deity with exorcistic powers. Uh, And you uh, explore him not only in the relationship that Chen is seeking to establish with him through ritual but also tracing um, the history of his hagiography and uh, his role in liturgical practices, both then and now. I wonder if you could introduce us to Celestial Marshall Yin and, uh, and your exploration of him.
0: Yeah. So, so understand that if I'm looking, if the goal, the goal of the book really is to, is to look at ritual the way this particular ritual looks at itself and Um, I had a teacher in graduate school, uh, Larry Sullivan, historian of religion, who used to say that every ritual is a theory of ritual writ large. And what he meant by that is that uh, there's a a usually unspoken theory of ritual running through the actual ritual performance, usually uncommented on. on, And uh, it's assumed by those who perform the ritual, the, the participants, the liturgists. And by everyone who's partaking in the ritual, say patrons and so forth. And so the, the theory of ritual that's running through, I think this ritual uh, is that ritual is a kind of communication, right? Between, in this case, the ordnance, Chen Di Wen trying to be ordained and this one martial deity, Injiao. So if I spent a whole chapter talking about Chen Di Wen's background, who he is, then I had to, to follow the logic of the ritual and the theory running through the ritual, talk about who yin jiao is. It's not so easy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, but I had some help, right? So the way in which Chundi went learned who yin jiao is, is two ways. One, through imagery, right? Uh, ritual scrolls of him that uh, were painted by uh, other masters in his lineage that are hung in altar spaces during uh, rites. Um, and so he knew what Injao looked like. And he had a certain iconography, but then they also had a hagiography, uh, and Injao studied or uh, Chan studied that um, before this ritual where we meet him. So I started with that um, that that story of Injao, and it's it's a great hagiography. Uh, so Injao was born he had 10, 10 previous lifetimes, but the hagiography really focuses on his 10th and last sort of long lifetime where he was, the uh, the crown prince then of the infamous, uh, King Zhou, the last emperor of the Shang dynasty, right? Who lost throne in 1045 or so BCE. This is the political event in, in ancient China. And, uh, Yin Zhao was born into this very famous situation. And so, uh, King Joe was always always depicted as corrupt and uh, uh, too in love with one of his concubines, who happens to be possessed by a fox spirit, who makes him make all kinds of terrible political decisions. And um, and there's you know, any Chinese would know this story backwards and forwards, or anyone studying China. <clears throat> so the context is clear um, for um, anyone who is in a Chinese context. So Injiao then is his son, and Injiao um, sort of gets thrown out of the palace. Uh, and uh, the wicked King Zhou just, you know, wants him to go away and, and be killed and really leaves him in the street to be eaten by by dogs. But no dogs would eat him. <laughs> in fact, other animals came and sort of suckled him, sort of nurtured him as a little kid, as just a toddler. And so he grows up then, uh, um you know kind of you know, under the care of 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 um of people and uh sort of the natural world uh and he as he learns what happened to him as he comes of age he gets angry he wants revenge and so according to this hagiography then he starts hunting around the countryside looking for an army <laughs> and uh, he finds actually an army <laughs> And he's so terrified by them. And he says, there's no way that I can commandeer this army. And so he's distraught. And he meets then uh, an old sort of Taoist master that the text calls uh, Shun, the realized one, or Shun Junren, or someone called Shun the perfected. All different translations for the Chinese, Shun Zhenren. And Shun is praying for a disciple. And he thought his prayers were answered. That yin jiao happens by. And so uh, Shun tells Injiao, look, you know, I can help you commandeer this army if you study the rites with me. And so Injiao buys it and they study. And as Injiao gets more and more adept in the rites, um, Shun, his master, sort of tells him, what use is an army when you have all the power of thunder? And uh, Injiao, uh finally uh, gets ordained himself. By his master um and so there's this uh great passages from this hagiography from this lineage in the middle of hunan of uh the oath that yin Jiao takes to his master that i pledge allegiance to your you and your teachings and should i ever defy them or go against them then i will suffer the consequences i'm i will even submit to being reborn as a dog in a future lifetime you know humiliating. Uh so Shun the perfected turns yin Jiao then from a kind of lust for revenge then to a kind of love of the Tao and practice and a in a certain kind of exorcistic practice, practice then to harness the power of thunder in order to heal, in order to protect, in order to drive away demonic influences. So <clears throat> Yin Jiao has this sort of uh, wonderful story, right, that um shun Di Wen, you know, close to memorized. And so I did some some, some detective work uh, and found that the story um, and, and aspects of it are really rooted then in a f- in a few extant sources I was able to find. One was a, a ritual text from 1274, kind of prefaced then to a right to summon yin jiao, all right by a master named Peng Yuan Tai. Right, who himself claims to be a fourth-generation master of masters from Sichuan, a few provinces over, um, who they, who his fourth-generation master then claimed to receive from Yin-Jiao himself this method for summoning the deity. So it's legitimate. Right? It's, it's rooted in a revelation. And uh, it turns out that text is rooted in a particular a lineage of practice or tradition of practice uh, that was fairly new at the time called the Correct Rites of the Heart of Heaven, Tianxin Zhengfa, and was one of many traditions of practice that sort of came on the scene in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, a time of serious religious innovation in, in South China. And, um, and so I said, okay, this is somehow something of this ritual and this image of yin jiao made its way down to chun's lineage i don't know how i can't show that i don't have the sources but something it's it's too similar to not be connected somehow so so pang Yuan tai in 1274 he has a certain image of yin jiao yin jiao is associated with one very high deity right the emperor of the north Bei di or sometimes called ziway da di and right? who is a stellar deity associated with the north um was with, with the Northern uh, Dipper. Um, Peng tai argues strenuously that Yin Jiao is not a deity of the underworld, right? Even though he has jurisdiction of the underworld, he's actually a lofty sort of celestial deity, even though he rules the underworld. And, he, and, and Peng and calls Yin Jiao a thunder god. So oh, this is thick here. So the tech, so I spent a lot of time in the book to sort of flesh out what all of these things mean in you know the 13th century, like the context here of the sort of roots of this image of angel that made its way to um down to Chandi when. Uh so uh, so that's one major source. Another source was uh, there's a hagiography um probably from the late Yuan early Ming period. So 14th early 15th century. Um, which overlaps a lot with the uh, hagiography that Chun has in his lineage, um, and uh, there's other another another tradition of practice called the Qingwei tradition. Uh, also has uh, a ritual manual um, that um, uh, has elements that word for word make their way into not just hagiography but also the banner right. So by putting these sort of, you know, these really arcane sources together, I was able to get a sense then of the images, of where the images of Injiao that Chen Diwen had, where they might be rooted in. I couldn't tell a history, a proper history, but I could at least give some sense that this stuff isn't made up, this isn't recent, that the practitioners in the middle of Hunan in these mountains are rooted in these old traditions, right, about a millennium old. So this is sort of how I went about talking about, uh, yin Uh, and I found some interesting things. I found, uh, that in later on, uh, in the Yuan and Ming period, uh, gets, it becomes sort of popular. He becomes a character in vernacular fiction. So, uh, some listeners might know a famous novel from the 16th century or so called canonization of the gods function, yani, right. Or journey to the North, AOG. And there's also earlier uh, so-called plain tales or pinghua, where Injiao shows up, and there Yingjiao a very different figure. I mean, he's 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 got these fantastic bodies. Um, he's mean, um, In canonization of the gods. He's called it. He's called a, 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 an ush, and he's called an evil deity. Very very different from the kind of paragon of sort of filial uh, devotion to his master and and loyalty that Chan's lineage, um, how they saw him and the sources that they were drawing on. So I try to sort of show that um, the way these deities make their way down then to contempl- to practice today is particular. Somewhere along the line, these uh, ancest- uh, liturgical ancestors of Chan Dian were choosing, you know which images here to use. Um, that um, Yin Zhao is is a lot of sides to him, a lot of different depictions of him. So I think uh, it should, I tried to shed a, some light on on, on on just how complex I think like religion on the ground really really is and has been. So this is how I went about sort of like <clears throat> sort of talking about who Yin Zhao is, but the 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 point really, was that uh, it was important for Chun then to know his version of Yin Zhao, to know that hagiography, to know that iconography in his lineage, because it's necessary for him to know who Yin Zhao is in order to summon him. So so the first half of the book is really sort of fleshing out then these two subjects in this ritual, right? the, two, the two interlocutors. Um, so that's what the book tries to do.
1: Great, thank you. Well, the second part of your book has has two parts, and the the first is where you explore the practices that Chen employs to in the ritual to communicate not directly with Yinjiao, but um, with divine beings who hold sway over him, particularly the Emperor of the North or Zuo Dadi that you mentioned earlier. Um, And then you go on to explore the modes of communication that Chen has directly with the deity um, and the production of a talisman. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Chun's uh, ritual appeals to um, Yin's superior, the emperor of the north. Yeah,
0: so so the second half of the book kind of like sort of shows how these two subjects that were just fleshed out in the first half of the book, how they kind of come together in this bannerite ritual and how they attempt to sort of form a bond. Um, so So yeah, so one chapter, is really um, a, still sort of preparatory in a way. What Chun Di Wen learned to do was he learned how to co- recover what these 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 priests call their, their his divine self. And uh, and so what he had to do is through he had to he had to establish then a way to communicate, as you said, not just with Yin Jiao, but with the people around Yin Jiao. Who are important to yin jiao, right? This Emperor of the North is, ma- you know, sort of uh, the, the the high deity that he sort of serves, and his own master, this Shun the Perfected or Shun the Realized One. So, so he had to. So the the ritual Im- sort of compels uh, or or sort of scripts for 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 Chun a, a way to sort of create a common ground or foundation by which to communicate with these deities. And the way you do that, this right, is an old Taoist idea that other scholars, Paul Anderson comes to mind immediately um, have worked on and uh, Isabel Robinet and others um, that you transform your body. So in this context, what that means is through sort of visualizations you imagine that you burn away your mundane body. And I show in detail then how Chun does this. And, and, and I try to use film to actually show this because it's hard to imagine. I'm sure listeners listening to this right now can't imagine what I'm talking about because it's very, very hard to imagine. You burn away your mundane body. So we see Chun doing that. And then he transforms his mundane body or what's left of his mundane body, really ashes, into a divine body. First divine body is a guy named Zhang Daoling, right? Anyone who studies Taoism will know the very first celestial master, the first celestial priest, right? In the second century CE, the one who got the initial revelation from Lord Lao or sort of deified version of Laozi and who the entire tradition sort of sees as the patriarch. So he first transforms into this divine body of Zhang Daoling, and then he transforms into the divine body of another deity, right? Named Wu. Right, who's often paired with Zhang da Ling in the ritual forms of South China. And then right he goes further right in this as a, in this deified body, right, he recovers sort of his true self. And in the language of this ritual, what that means is that he recovers right from the formless void. Prior to the beginning of the world, his true primordial self, right? What this tradition calls a yuan chun, right, or a sort of a primordial asterism. It's, it's hard to translate. Um, at points the, the the ritual calls this the true person, primordial destiny, the yuan ming zhen right? And and what this is is it's 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 through the power of visualization going back to the beginning of the world right? Taoist practice is about going back to the origin, right? It is the, the, you know, the, it's just, it's the tradition about origins. Right? <laughs> so origins thinking runs through the entire tradition. So right at the beginning, before the beginning of the world, there was nothing. And then there was something that was still primordial Qi, right? Zhu Qi in Chinese. Right? And then the world starts to move. It starts, to, she starts to split things, start to sort of transform into one another. And then you have the phenomenal world emerge that we know. And so the world's a variegated sort of um, version of this primordial stillness. So went imagines here in his mind's eye that he goes back then to that moment. And in that void, then, sorry, he sort of recognizes then his true primordial self, that part of him that is still pristine ancestral chi bequeathed directly by the Tao at the beginning of existence. That's a true self. He reclaims that. Paul Anderson uh, has recently written a book called Paradox of Being from the Harvard Asia Center that really, really dives into this. And he gives a kind of philosophical reading of of this ritual, uh, which is widespread on uh, which is you know well worth uh, reading. So as this sort of, this 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 true person here, that true person then can ascend to the celestial court. And then Chen Diwen can have audience to the Emperor of the North himself. And he can request the Emperor of the North decree that Yin Jiao obey the summons, his summons. And that's what he does. And so I try to show that in a book. It's very very hard to write about this in a way that can hold a reader's attention. And so I try to write about this in a book, like weaving in film, and and in photography. Because again, you can't possibly imagine this. It's too fantastic. So, um, so I try to sort of make this as concrete as possible, and like really, you know, like what's it like to be this ordinant? You're doing this ritual. So this is what uh, is necessary then for Chen to try then to summon this deity. He first has to go to the deity's boss, <laughs> but he has to he has to come correct, which I love. He has to, he has to go in the right form, right? He can't just waltz in and say, hey, I need a decree that you know one of your deities will obey my summons. He has to sort of deal with the gods on their terms. And I found these profoundly religious, profoundly religious. Dealing with the gods on their terms, and so uh, Chun does us so, He learned to do this from his masters. He took this seriously. He was worried whether he did it well enough. So um, I try to sort of just f- flesh this out as thickly as I possibly could because it's it is thick. So this is what gets then Chun in the in position then to actually summon Injo. So the end of the book is the summon.
1: Great. Thank you. Well, um, I want to sort of ask a question now because you mentioned film several times and and photography, and we know how hard that is to capture in in the printed book and the printed word. So you have a companion website for your book. Can you tell us about it and what's there and um, how do you anticipate uh, people um, interacting with it and, and learning from it?
0: Yeah. So as I mentioned, I mean, how do you write about ritual, any ritual without killing it, you know, without just doing such violence to it, it becomes, you know, unrecognizable and boring. So everyone who's written on ritual has this problem. Um, so. Um, so, uh, I, I, didn't develop a website. Uh, I worked with a, a student, uh, who developed this website, who's named Michael Burke, who's currently doing an MS in library and information science at Simmons University in Boston. And he built a beautiful website. Uh, it's David So it's, it's open access. And I encourage you to teach with it. Uh, uh, those of you who teach Chinese religion, uh, and, um, I He used, as his raw material, um, he used photography that is way beyond my level. So I had some friends. I had some help. So Doug Cantor is a friend of mine uh, who is a freelance photographer in New York City and in Beijing for 16 years. Uh, he covered 9-11. He covered the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Um, he uh, would regularly uh, take pictures for the New York Times, Agence uh, France-Presse, Business Week, Financial Times, and so forth. Um, he's a very accomplished photographer and we had become friends. He was living in Beijing at the time when I was really coming back and forth from Hunan. Uh, um, and we went down several times, uh, and he went down several times on his own and took just phenomenal pictures. Uh, so a lot of those pictures, um, populate the website. Um, more recently, I've been working with another photographer named Nick Otto, who is a freelance photographer based in San Francisco now, but he also lived in Beijing and Shanghai for several years. And he's published with the Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, Associated Press. He did work for Chen kai Ge, the uh, Chen Gu, the uh, director. Um, so, uh, you know, these are these are um, you know uh, excellent photography. And um, and I should say, those of us who work in in Hunan uh, on on Taoism on and local religion, uh, photography is important to us. Patrice Favaz is an, an incredible photographer, and his books are filled with stunning images. Alana Rose books are filled with stunning images. And so f- photography is just part of, in, it's in the water for those of us who work in Hunan, So we, we can't figure out a way to actually talk about this and share it without showing it. So, um, so it's hard to then work through the ritual part of the book. The, so one of the parts I just uh, talked about, this transformation of the body business, this recovering of primordial self business—it's—it's it's hard to write about that without, without constantly referring to imagery. Otherwise, it just wouldn't make sense. Uh, so, so that's what the website is—it's meant as a, as part of the text, really. Um, I don't think the text would make sense at points without the website. So, that's what the website is trying to do.
1: Great. Thank you. I know I've watched some yeah. of the films there and they're, uh, they're really terrific. You get a sense of, of the ritual. And I th- I find your descriptions in the book very evocative. And then the, uh, the films and the photography just really bring it to life even more. So I, I want to ask a couple more questions. One is about the uh, production of a talisman that Chen undergoes to convince um Yinjiao to sort of hold up his end of the bargain. Um so I wonder if you talk a little bit about the production of this talisman and and the kinds of cajoling that that happen with it.
0: Yeah. So so after Chun sort of recovers his divine self, you know, has audience with the Emperor of the North, he actually gets a decree. How does he express that then to Yin Jiao? And here's where he does talk to Yin Jiao directly uses the language of talismans to do this. Now, talismans are, lots of traditions use talismans, right? And everyone has seemingly different definition for them. Right. But I think in this tradition, right, uh, a talisman is a mode of communication with the deity. Uh, at least this kind of talisman, there are many kinds. Uh, so, the, the so what a talisman is, is on this, on this banner, this three by eight foot uh, blue banner, like Chun writes out uh, hundreds of, of graphs, most of which are not recognizable. They're the language of the gods. Some are recognizable to Mandarin to Chinese readers, but most are not. And what I found fascinating is then, as a primordial self, right? As you know, sort of, he's you know, Chan is emanating then this primordial chi, this 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 vivifying sort of font of of life, right? And he's, he's, he's emanating or channeling this qi into the talismanic writing itself. And so as he writes each graph, he's saying an incantation along with it, a breathy incantation, right? So qi is associated with the breath. And, and he's visualizing what he's writing and what he's speaking. So that that, that combination here of voice, of ink, of imagination is imbuing every stroke of every graph comprising this talisman with the ancestral chi, and that—that's what makes it able to signify in the celestial realm that angel dwells. So, for example, here I—I um, uh, I take readers through um, uh, moments of the talisman because it's very long. It would take volumes to do to work through all of it. Uh, but uh, the moment uh, that would make sense to us now in this conversation, the moment where he declares to Yin Zhao that, you know, he has atta- obtained a decree from the Emperor of the North that Yin Zhao should be summoned, right? And uh, he writes out four characters uh, in recognizable Chinese, Bei Di Ling," the Emperor of the North decrees. And as he's writing each stroke, then, he is saying the following, the emperor of the North himself raises celestial troops. He musters the myriad spirits. The great emperor has a decree that today I implement. Marshal Yin Jiao quickly comply. And he's imagining then Yin Jiao sort of receiving this, this decree from his boss. All right. So just this really concrete moments here, again, which I tried to show with imagery film and um uh, and still photography and um drawings uh, exactly sort of how this voice and this ink uh, this writing and this uh, sort of visualized imagination come together so that's one moment right and there's another moment where he is um uh, uh Chen Diwen is is really speaking to Yin Jiao directly and i think it's really fascinating um so further on, again, the talisman ha- the talisman is compri- comprised of hundreds of graphs, and he's just writing them one on top of another until they create a great, huge ink ball mess. Like it's completely inscrutable except to the gods. But so Chun is is writing and writing and he's incanting and canting and he's visualizing and visualizing and he gets to a point where he uh, um, inscribes a certain um, taboo name of uh, yin jiao and he incants the following he said you yin jiao pointed to heaven and pledged an oath you pointed to earth and made a covenant as soon as this heart seal is brought forth yin jiao will appear the heart seal is the taboo name and he's writing out in the language here the written language the spoken language and chun's imagination his he's the 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 ritual here is, is the is echoing here the oath that Injiao made with his own master, Shun the perfected, or Shun the realized one, when he turned away from his from his lust for vengeance to go after his father, the wicked King Joe, and turn toward study of the Tao. And at this point, it's the the, the talisman is echoing then the hagiography that Chun had learned, right? Parts of the ha- hagiography read: This is a, a, a passage from the ha- hagiography. Your, your disciple Injiao is the crown prince of King Zhou. I'm sorry. Let me set this up a little better. This is uh, when uh, Shun is inducting Injiao into the rites, ordaining him. Um, Shun says to Injiao, according to the hagiography, your disciple Injiao is the crown prince of King Zhou and the queen. I'm sorry. This I'm I'm, I'm not doing this well. Let me back up. This is Injiao's voice here in the hagiography, right? And he's saying to his master, shun the perfected, shun the realized one. Your disciple Injiao Mi is the crown prince of King Zhou and the queen. I was born their son on behalf of heaven and zealously intended to keep peace in the country. But it happened that my father, King Zhou, was without morals. He abandoned me to the great wild and relegated my mother to the Chili Palace. Fortunately, I encountered... right?" general Marquis Yin, one of those who raised Injiao, who rescued me and nurtured me in my hapless life. When I was 18 years old, my heart harbored hatred for my father, and I wished to find strong military men to take revenge. When I met my master, he exhorted me to realize this action would be a great crime against heaven. I've already turned my heart toward goodness. I vowed to obey my master's instructions, and so to the end, will not be of two minds. Should I violate this oath, I'll be willing to suffer heaven's punishment. Chun is imagining that scene as he's encanting, as he's writing this graph. He goes on to another graph, and he encants the following. This is Chun's voice. You, In Jiao, are the son of King Zhou, the god of the star great year, who governs the heavens. Recall the past. Your mother already suffered her punishment. A white deer suckled you, and white birds clothed you. And the realized one, Shun, raised you, and you were awakened to the Tao and apprehended true reality. Upon seeing the realized one's secret taboo name, you yourself will descend. He goes on to another graph, and Chun writes and encants the following. Yin jiao, jiao, hear me urge you over and over again. Underneath the tree in the mulberry grove, you already struck a covenant with your master. You pointed to the sun and pledged an oath. You pointed to the moon and made a covenant. As soon as this heart seal is brought forth, Yin Jiao will appear goes on to another graph. Actually, it's in legible Chinese, the graph of a dog. And Chun writes and encants, if you keep your pledge, you yourself will descend. If you do not keep your pledge, you will turn into a dog for the next lifetime. All while he's imagining those moments in the Hagiography that he knows. Now, I have never read anything about talismans that was so gripping, right? Talismans are usually talked about as a kind of text or a kind of material culture, a thing, an object, an artifact, right? Um, And they're often placed in some kind of ritual context, but, you know, they're really hard to penetrate in any tradition, I think. But here, our sources allow us to actually penetrate. I mean, we see exactly how at least this kind of talisman is working, right? It's, it's a language here that Chun is using then to get Yin Jiao to comply with the summons. And to me, it's fascinating, right? He pulls first on Yin Jiao's heartstrings. He's saying, Remember the altar master. <laughs> Don't forget, you promised, <laughs> you promised that you would serve his liturgical progeny. Here I am, right? I am his liturgical progeny, right? Here's the list of the whole pantheon of masters are here to vouch for that. Then, as the as the as the sequence goes on, Chandi Wan starts to gently shame the God. Remember you promised, (laughs) you promised, you promised. And then at the end he threatens him. Remember you said, if you don't comply with your master's teachings, your master said that his liturgical progeny, you know, should be taken seriously as his lineage and therefore you should obey us. Remember that if you don't do that, you're going to be reborn a dog harsh language i think especially in the middle of a ritual right i was shocked when i i sort of was working through this with the priests so this movement right from sort of gentle cajoling to shaming to even kind of berating the 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 deity to me is just fascinating it's and it's and it's 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 completely relatable right you can only you can only sort of see this, I think, in a ritual if you're sort of taking the if you're sort of taking the view of the ritual and taking the deity as serious as seriously there. You're suspending all judgment that, you know, I don't know if this is really going on. This is all in the mind of the of the priest. No. What matters here is that Chun is taking Yin Jiao as absolutely seriously as existing and listening. And Yin is a subject here. Chun is a subject here. Chun is communicating with Injiao through this highly coded symbolic language, this talismanic language. And the language, uh, you know, another thing I find fascinating about this is, you know, the language is not—it's not. It's not um, we there's no um, guarantee that Injiao still will will comply. The whole point of cajoling him is that he might not comply. That's why Chun was so nervous in the beginning.
1: Yeah, no knots in the banner, so he's he's wanting that to happen.
0: Right, and that does happen from time to time. So all this is just so charged. And when you're working through, when you, when you witness it, like I did, and yeah, and then you work through the texts and the rituals with the priests and you really feel like, the, the, I mean, they, it, you can feel the energy. The language is perlocutionary. It affects the feelings, thoughts, and actions of the deity, right? It's not illocutionary. It doesn't make things happen just by speaking, right? Illocutionary speech is speech is the act. I pronounce you man and wife, right? It doesn't work that way. So this pushes against, and I, I flesh this out a bit in the book, this pushes against then a certain um, a, a sort of classic scholarship on talismans, especially from earlier periods of, of Taoist history. And at this point, I I, I I hope that, you know, others working on talismans and other traditions might find this useful. And I look forward to sort of having conversations with those people in the future. Um, I think that there's a lot of comparative thought to be had here. Um a lot um so i find these moments just just completely fascinating and and just i was so sucked in then to the world of the right itself and i did my very best then to try to sort of construct the book and the website in such a way to share that so you felt in the world too and that's my you know really my heartfelt goal for the for this book
1: so in addition to reading your book and listening to this podcast, really hope people go to the website and look at the films and the video and really um, get the full experience if at all possible. So I want to ask um, one more question and you sort of place yourself as a scholar within the phenom study, you know, the phenomenology of religion within ritual studies. I wonder if you could say a word about how, what you're doing with this book has sort of um, wider applications beyond even Chinese studies and East Asian studies, but uh, to the larger sort of religious world.
0: Yeah. Well, first we hope that, you know, we're all so pressed in the, in the academic world that um, it's hard to read outside of your, our little silos, but I, I hope that this book does lead to sort of sinking uh, and discussions across traditions. Um, but I think a couple things. I think one one of the things I think the book tries to do self consciously is it tries to sort of offer a, a, a certain methodology, a way to sort of like read a living ritual in in a in a in a historical context. And so I don't give a history of the ritual because I I I couldn't, I didn't have the sources to do that. But I try to sort of I try to sort of like talk about the ideas that are at play, the theories that are being performed in this ritual. And I try to say these aren't; these are rooted from somewhere, and they're actually rooted then in the history of Taoist thought. And much of that history is from you know eight to nine hundred years ago till now. And so, um, I so the way I think of it is, I, I think that the ideas that certain ideas that certain sort of you know Taoist theorists or Taoist theologians, I like to call them, people who are you know really writing treatises and prefaces to rituals and rituals themselves sometimes. Trying to really figure out how this stuff works, trying to really figure out how to deal with these deities, really figure out what does ritual efficacy mean. That some of those ideas then are baked into this ritual here. They're at play, they're performed, they're assumed in the ritual and in the liturgists like Chandi one who perform it. We're again, rarely articulated. And so that baking in is something I sort of try to show. Like, how do you sort of then some people call this kind of my approach, sort of historical anthropology, Uh, maybe, but the way I think about it is, is, is how do you do a close reading of the ritual and sort of follow the threads of little ideas and theories baked into the ritual and see where they take you? And so, so, so for me, a ritual is a kind of, it's a great tapestry that's woven by these different strands of, of ritual practice and thought. And those strands, each of those strands have histories. They come from somewhere and I try to just follow them up as much as I can. So, so that kind of approach is something that um, I haven't seen in a lot of places. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. I just haven't seen it much. And I'd like to sort of find those people who are working in a similar kind of way and see what they're working on. And so, and then the other the other takeaway I think is is sort of theoretical, right? And it's really I mean, I'm thinking along with sort of scholars who are more generally interested in a ritual, and and so that the critique that's the move really that the book is is performing is a kind of it's 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 moving away from looking at ritual as a kind of language or a symbol system in which an analysis of grammar or syntax of the ritual takes precedence. So these are sort of more structuralist approaches um, which have really dominated the study of ritual in the 20th century. Um, And what doesn't work for me in in those kinds of approaches is that they tend to write the players of the ritual, in this case, both human and divine, out of the ritual. (laughs) And so the subjects get lost. They, They melt away somehow. And because I start with that anxiety, because I start with that scene of Chandi when chain smoking, waiting for this banner to not, you can't do that. So then how do we talk about ritual in a way then that takes sort of subjects as seriously as the ritual itself takes the subject? And so this book is a kind of attempt to do that. And, you know, I leave it up to readers to see whether, you know, they find this, this way of thinking about ritual convincing or not. But again, I would love to find other folks who either resonate with this or have problems with it. Uh, across traditions um so again ritual is a kind of mode of communication between these subjects in which they participate in the ritual in order to communicate with each other by means of that ritual language um, that symbolic language so this is sort of the bigger picture that the book is is, is, is sort of performing really yeah.
1: wonderful thank you well David we've taken up a lot of your time but I'd like to follow with one last question you have so much material that you have gathered over the years, only a fraction of which I know made it into the book. Can you tell us about what you're working on now?
0: Yeah, I have more material for like, I have enough material for like three lifetimes. Uh, um, So I'm working on a couple of projects. Uh, One, since the pandemic, I haven't been able to get back to China, of course. Uh, So I've been working uh, actually on One of the traditions that came on the scene in the 13th century or so, 12th, 13th century. Uh, uh, So I'm really drawn to this period. We have a lot of sources extant uh, from this period in the Taoist canon um, and in uh, other places. Um, and so this explosion of kind of, of, of Taoist innovation and thought <clears throat> and practice. And there's one tradition called Fengdu Pai. And sort of the, the lineage or tradition of the Fengdu masters, the masters who deal with the Fengdu underworld, which is uh, dealing with the dead. And so there's several texts um, and I've been sort of translating them and thinking about them. And um, so a sliver of that shows up in the book, um, uh, uh, but not not a, not a lot. And I'm just sort of fascinated with them, uh, that they are uh, they are definitely, they look at themselves as Taoists. They're connecting themselves to earlier Taoist traditions. Um, they're connected to Du Guangting, a great Taoist from the uh, 9th and 10th centuries. Um, they're connected to Shangqing practice and early celestial master practice for the Taoist uh, scholars out there. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what Um, i'm going to say about this but i just i'm just i just I, i i love the imagination of the of the dead that's going on here and i'm not quite sure what my research question is yet i'm just sort of translating and seeing what what will emerge so that's one project uh sort of monograph length project uh then i have another that has been delayed because um until i can get to china again hopefully soon So in 2018, one of the senior Taoists, the living Taoist in the lineage who helped me so much, kind of the intellectual force of the lineage who really revivified the tradition when open practice became once again permissible in about 1990, after 35 years or so of on and off oppression, um, he he passed away in uh, January of 2018. Uh, so, uh, I immediately went, uh, with my spouse, uh, Ling Zhang, uh, Zhang Ling, who's a scholar of, uh, uh, Song, uh, uh, environmental history actually at Boston college. And, um, we met up with our photographer friend, Nick Otto, and we participated in his funeral, which was heartbreaking and stunning and, you know, five days just grueling and, um, and so we have all of this stuff from the funeral. And the funeral is fascinating because uh, here you have a Taoist priest um, uh, who is sort of the, the deceased sort of patron of a, a Buddhist funeral. And so here we see, and I, I, I didn't talk about it here, but in the book I talk a bit about the idea that these, these masters practice multiple traditions at once often this particular lineage practices Taoist traditions, but they also practice traditions that are Buddhist. And I talk a bit about that at the book. So it seems to me that a funeral of a Taoist master, a Buddhist funeral of a Taoist master is a fantastic place then to kind of unravel how these Taoist and Buddhist sorts of practices have come together into a kind of coherent program of practice and identity. So this is a big project, and but it's something that I feel like I have to do. And I feel like I owe it to this master because, uh, you, you know, he, he's, He was the one who had the authority to let me in and share with me all of his manuals, many of which he recopied himself and redacted. So this is a personal one for me. And that's sort of like a, I think I I need a bit more maturity, I think to actually do justice to that, to that project, but you know, one book at a time.
1: Exactly. So those (laughs) all sound like great projects. And I want to say thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And take care, and hopefully we'll all be able to get back to our research sites sooner than later.
0: Thank you very, very much, Noel.